All right, good morning, good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. Hey, wasn't it great to have Joe lead, leading us in worship this morning? Wasn't that great? So appreciate Joe, man. I love Joe's heart. All right, this week is uh, something a little bit different this week. We are actually launching our community groups this week. So we do a big launch in the fall, and then we do another big launch in the spring. So uh, today, we're going to be talking about something that's going to really focus, laser in on this topic of community. So I want to encourage you to pull out your notes and pull out your Bibles, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 12 today. Romans chapter 12 today. We're going to look at... um, Verses 9 to 13, we're going to be talking about building a healthy community. You know, Vince Lombardi, the great college coach for Alabama, you know, when he was coaching his team, uh, he wanted to get back to the basics, the fundamentals, right, the essentials. And so starting the practice, he held up a football and he said, boys, or he said, men, This is a football. And so today, I want us to get back to the fundamentals. I want us to get back to the essentials, right? What does it mean to be in community? What does it mean to to live out our faith, to be around other believers? What does it mean to be a part of a church family? So we're going to look at this, the the building of of a healthy community. Romans chapter 12 Beginning in verse 9, it says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You know, we know... We know that the church is not a building, right? I mean, I mention that all the time over the years. The church is not a building, right? The church is the people. You know, the the church is not uh, the steeple. The church is the people, amen? God doesn't save buildings. God saves people. Jesus didn't die for a piece of property. He died for sinners. He died for humanity, He died for for people who were lost and far away from him. The gospel tells us that this is the the, the scandalous message of the gospel, that if you, as a broken sinner, I mean wicked, depraved to the core, if you turn to Christ by faith, if you turn from your sin and you place your trust in Christ and you surrender all to him, he'll save you. That's, That's scandalous. That's the amazing beauty of the gospel. Right, That as a sinner, we can be made right with a holy and righteous God. God does more than just save you. He does something greater than that. Yes, he saves you in a moment. He converts you. When you turn to Christ, in that moment, he regenerates you. He imparts spiritual life to you. The moment you trust Christ, he does a a spiritual work in your life. He, um, he imparts spiritual life to you. He opens your eyes to the gospel and he, and he does this heart transforming work in your life. But he goes beyond that. 
He goes beyond forgiving your debt. He folds you into his family. Not just the universal family. Um, believers from every generation are a part of God's family. I'm talking about he puts you into a local church, right? He, he connects you to his, his body, his hands and feet here on earth. So God becomes our father, right? And Romans says that we can cry out to him, Abba, Father, Aramaic. Literally, we can say, Daddy. So our relationship with the creator completely changes because he's forgiven us. He folds us into his family. And because of Christ, now we're able to have this sweet fellowship with one another. You know, the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. And sometimes, you know, we talk about fellowship as believers. We think fellowship is, oh, it's like potlucks and parties. No, no, it's more than that, right? It's, um, it, we have something in common. That's what it means. The, the, the base, of, the, the root of the meaning, right? We have something in common. Well, what do we have in common? Well, 1 John 1, 3 says, that which we have seen and heard. So John's talking about Christ. He's saying, we proclaim also to you. I love that Christ was the message. Christ was always the message. You know, you can, you can hear a lot of um, really good preaching today. I mean, you could go online and, I mean, you could listen to anybody. But it just seems like there is so very little preaching of Christ. It seems like there's more preaching about, you know, 10 steps to be a better person and five ways to build your self-esteem and the secrets of a, you know, a healthy, thriving marriage. Not, you know, not to downplay those things. Those are good things, but there's something better, right? Christ exalting, preaching, looking to Christ. John says, man, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And then notice what he says about this fellowship between believers. And indeed, our fellowship, our koinonia, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So our fellowship as believers is based on our relationship with Christ. Because we've experienced the grace and the love of God, we're folded into this family, right? We're connected to one another. Some of you are like, I don't like being connected to that person, right? Hey listen, some people are lovable, and some people are unlovable. And sometimes, I think God has a good sense of humor. I think God chooses at times to refine our character. And he's going to put people in your life that maybe it's not very lovable. He wants you to love. He wants you to minister to them. So our spiritual relationship with one another is grounded in the relationship that we have, that we have with Christ. We have a common relationship. A common heavenly father. A common savior. Biblical fellowship is not um, biblical fellowship is not some activity. We think fellowship. Well, we got we're having good fellowship. You know, we're getting together. We're breaking bread. We're looking at the word. No, biblical fellowship is not so much an activity. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. That's that's what centers us. That's what connects us. So here's the big question: If God's our Father. And, and, and we're a part of this spiritual family together, how should we relate to one another? What should the church look like? What should characterize our lives as followers of Christ? Well, God tells us what community really looks like, what it should look like based on Romans 12. Let me give you a little insight into the passage. 
What's interesting about Romans chapter 12 is you, if, you look, if you read the book of Romans, man, it's, it's, it's all about God's righteousness and justification by faith. And Paul's making these brilliant, biblical, logical arguments for how we can be made right with God. It's not law, it's grace. And then he comes to the application side of the book. So we come to chapter 12. There's not one single command. There's not one imperative, an imperative, a command in the Greek, until verse 14. So until verse 14 of Romans 12, there's not do this, do that, do it now. There's no commands. You know what it is? It is simply a description. It's a given. He's, he's, he's just making statements about what a Christian looks like, how a Christian lives his life, how you know, a believer should treat other believers. I mean, it's just like fact. It's just statement. You know, it's, it's not so much the, the, the urgency of a command. It's, it's if you know Christ, this is how you're going to live out your life. Verses 9 to 13, Paul tells us how to treat insiders. He, he says, this is how you get along with believers. Verses 14 to 21, he shifts gears and he says, okay, this is how you treat the outsiders, um, unbelievers, those who are far away from God. So today, we're going to focus on verses 9 to 13 because I want us to focus on what does it look like to be a, a part of a healthy community, a biblical community? What do we do? How do we live our lives? How do we interact with one another? Well, let's begin Romans 12, 9. Paul says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Here's point number one. Love others with a pure heart. Love others with a pure heart. You know, C.S. Lewis, he's one of the greatest writers, theologians ever, ever. If you've never read um, his books, especially Mere Christianity, you've got to buy one, read it. It's amazing. In his book, The Four Loves, he says there are Four basic kinds of loves. There's agape, which is the self-like, self-giving, self-sacrificing love towards his enemies. Then there's phileo. Phileo is the love of friendship. Remember when Peter denied Jesus multiple times? And then they're on the, the bank of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is restoring Peter He's restoring him back into ministry. I think Jesus is coming back to Peter and wants to make, make sure that Peter's heart's right, heart Peter's okay. And Jesus says, Peter, do you, do you love me as a friend? Do you phileo me? Then there's eros, the love of romance. It's a love between two people, desire, sexual attraction. And then you have storge, the love of affection that arises through natural attachment. The word here for love in verse 9, let love be genuine, is agape. Agape is not some emotional, you know, lovey-dovey type of a word. It's self-giving, self-sacrificing. It's sacrificial in nature. Let me say it this way. This is a love that is best seen in action. How did God love you? Agape love. The cross. The cross is a display of God's love. Love is best seen in action. God sent his son to be a ransom for many, to seek and to save the lost, who willingly gave his life for the, for the sins of the world. 
you know, the word translated genuine means without hypocrisy. So the word hypocrite actually means play actor or pretender. It was a, used, it was a word that was used by the Greeks to describe this, the, the acting of a stage player. So an actor would, would wear multiple masks. So the actor would come out wearing one mask, he would go behind the curtains, and he would put on a different mask, and he would come out and he would play different parts. And so Paul is saying he's warning against pretending that you love people when you really don't love people. We've, we've all been there, right? We've all been there. We have pretended that we really genuinely love and care for someone, and when they leave the room, you know, you start, you start yapping, you start saying things about it. We've all been there, right? Paul, Paul's saying, listen, don't be a pretender. Don't be a pretender, right? Don't pretend that you care when you don't. Don't just go through the motions. He's saying, let your love be genuine. Be the real deal. Genuinely love people. Don't be a hypocrite when it comes to loving other people. Then he says, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. The word abhor means to hate strongly, right? Maybe you've heard people say, you know, I just love. I don't hate. I'm a lover, right? Not a hater. You know, the person who says this, they really don't understand true love because love and hate are the opposite of the same coin. If you love something, you're going to hate what threatens that love. Like, I love my wife. Anything that threatens that love, you know, like it's on, right? Like, I love my kids. Anything that threatens, like, the, the, my kids being hurt or, or my kids, you know, possibly getting hurt and maybe leading to death, oh, it's a big deal, man. You know, when your kids are little and you take them to a store, you're holding their hand, right? You're making sure that a car's not going to hit them, right? Because anything that threatens that love, that, threaten, that threatens that relationship, it's, it's a game changer. So Paul is saying, hate the things that threaten and destroy um, that, that love. Let me, put it, let me put it this way. Real love hates evil. Paul doesn't, Paul's not blurring the lines here, right? He's saying real love doesn't blur the distinctions between right and wrong. Real love holds fast. The word there for fast is the word for glue. It's hold fast to what is good, right? Hold fast to, to good, not evil. The thought here is be glued to righteousness, which is good and, and godly. Here's just marriage application. God tells us to be glued, to hold fast. It's the same um, meaning in the book of Genesis. Be glued, hold fast to your spouse. What does it mean to be one flesh? What if I, what does it mean to be one flesh? It means to hold fast, right? So if you're not holding fast, then possibly you could hold fast to something else. Look at Romans 12 verse 10. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. Here's point number two. Love others with family affection. Love others with family affection. The word for love here in verse 10 when it talks about love one another with brotherly affection, this word for love is storge. And it's the only time, this word is only used here in the entire New Testament. It means tender affection particularly family affection, right? 
Now, some of you maybe grew up in good families. Some of you maybe grew up in not so much good families, right? Maybe a bad family, maybe a weird family, maybe a dysfunctional family. I always say every family is dysfunctional. It just depends on to what degree, right? The question is, you know, is it uh, capital D dysfunction or is it little d dysfunction, right? In a family, not everyone gets along, right? Anyone got siblings, right? I mean, I, I had two sisters. I, I understand what that's like, family dysfunction a little bit, um, sibling rivalry. You know, maybe you grew up in a family where there was favoritism, Favoritism causes bitterness and resentment. It causes deep wounds and hurt. But as believers, you know, we have to work through those things, right? We extend forgiveness. We pass the grace card. Why? Because at the end of the day, you're family. So Paul's saying, listen, at the end of the day, show brotherly affection. Because at the end of the day, you're family. You know, you might say, well, you know, I've been, I've been hurt, you know, in the past. I've been hurt by people in the church. You know, I'm having a hard time getting over it right? And, um, and I get that. I mean, I understand people, people get, people be hurt. People can get hurt by other people. But, but if, here's the deal. If you leave that church and you go to another church, you're going to get hurt again. It's just like a vicious cycle. You're going to get hurt and hurt and hurt and the hurt is never going to end. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. You know, to be a part of a of a family means your heart is gonna be broken. Your heart is gonna be broken, but you need to forgive and you need to let go. You need to release the bitterness and the pain. God is calling us to have tender family affection for one another. Now, why is this important? I mean, why should we genuinely love and, and serve and care for one another? Because it's important because it witnesses to the truth of the gospel. It witness, it's a witness that God is our Father. You know, the church, it's, it's a family. The church is not a club. The church is not an organization. The church is a family. If we act the opposite, if we do the opposite of what God calls us to do, like backbiting, gossiping, and we're just hard-hearted towards one another, we feel indifferent, maybe we're resentful, maybe we're bitter, maybe we're unforgiving. It contradicts who God is and who we're supposed to be. So when we're living out the gospel and we're loving and we're caring for one another, it's, it actually puts God on display. It's a witness to the truth of the gospel. Number two, it visibly demonstrates that we're followers of Christ. I mean, in the upper room. I mean, this is like, this is like, Hours before Jesus was going to be betrayed, arrested, beaten, scourged, crucified. He brings all the disciples together and he tells them in John 13. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. So that's the model. He says, how should you love one another? 
I'm the model, right? Love people the way I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All people will know. The church will know and your oikos will know. Because when you genuinely love other people, it impacts other people. It impacts them. In 1 John 3.14, John the apostle picks up the same theme and he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know this? He says, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Like that's pretty strong. I mean, that's pretty pointed. He says, listen, if you have love for other people, it shows that you're a believer. It's a mark of saving grace. It's a mark of genuine faith in your life. Well, you might say, well, what if I don't have this tender affection for other believers? What if, I don't, what if I'm not marked with this kind of love? Well, pray that God would change your heart. Pray, ask God to give you a new heart. Ask God to help you see people the way he sees them. And then accept other people's differences. Let me, let me take a, a detour real quick. Sometimes we don't want to accept other people's differences. You know, it's like, it's like when you meet someone, you start dating them, you know. You put your best foot forward, don't you, right? You put your best foot forward. And you don't show that, you know, um, any of their differences or idiosyncrasies or, or whatever bother you, right? Until you get married. Then you start saying, well, that kind of bothers me. I don't like that, right? And here's the deal. Sometimes you move into the danger zone of, I'm going to change them. I'm going to change them. Rule number one for marriage, you can't change your spouse. You just can't. Just bottom line. And, and I'll say this. Not only should you not try to change your spouse, only God can change them. Only the Holy Spirit can do this work in someone's life where the Holy Spirit is changing a person. So if you want to try to change your spouse, go ahead. You're just going to be miserable, right? You're going to be miserable. So when it comes to accepting other people's differences, we, you know, the church is, gosh, I mean, we're so different. You know, look at, look at our church, right? Different backgrounds. We all have different temperaments, personalities, um, hurts, habits, hangups, outlooks on life. We all have, here's the big one, we all have our own preferences, right? It's not a right or wrong. It's like gray. It's, it's somewhere in the middle. That's a preference, right? It's your outlook on life. Um, we all have different viewpoints. We're wired differently. And this is by God's design. God has wired us differently. We're, we look different, we act different, we have different backgrounds, different, we're wired differently. That is by God's design. I mean, imagine if, if everyone was just like you. Some of you are like, that'd be great. That'd be awesome, right? But I mean, how boring would life be if everyone was just like you? I mean, like, like ice cream flavors. How boring if everything was just vanilla, right? No, man, we, don't, don't, don't get me started. But 
There's a lot of other ice cream flavors that we should really enjoy, not just vanilla, right? If you just stick with vanilla or chocolate, you need to get outside of your box a little bit, okay? And by the way, if you've never tried Handel's ice cream, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. If you've never tried it, you need to go. All right, so you need to accept other people's differences. When, when you refuse to do that, it's just sad. It's, it's not being Christ-like. Remember that Christian love is a growing thing. It's a growing thing, right? You don't just have like just this, all this love in the world for everyone. No, you, you, you gotta grow in this love. It doesn't happen overnight, right? It's not like, you know, you could place the order and it's drive-through and you, you get the bag, boom, like it's done. It's not microwave, it's not fast food. It, it takes time, there's preparation, it's crock pot. Right, you gotta put the work into it, the preparation. This is what Paul says to the church at Thessalonica. Second Thessalonians 1.3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because, notice what he says, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. He's saying your faith is growing towards God and your love is growing horizontally for other people. Can that be said of you? Is your faith growing vertically? Is your love for other people growing horizontally? If you did a spiritual inventory of your life, could you say, my genuine love for other believers is growing. My love for the lost is growing. I mean, let's just park it there for a moment, right? Hey, it's easy to love people who are like you. That's what Jesus told the disciples, right? In the Sermon on the Mount. It's different when you have to love people that are different from you. And so are you loving, not just believers like in your community group, but do you love that, that neighbor that God has placed next to you? Are you investing in that person? Are you loving that person that God has put next to you at work? They're different from you. They have maybe different spiritual beliefs. Maybe their life is a complete mess. It's, there's a lot of brokenness. Do you love them? Do you, do you see them the way Christ sees them? So here's point number three. Put other people's interests above your own. You know, it's easier said than done, right? I mean, who wants to put other people's needs before their own? I don't know about you, but if I'm at like Disneyland or I'm somewhere, I don't care where it is. If I'm in line and someone cuts in line, like very close to me, I move from pastor to heathen status very quickly. I'm no longer a pastor. I'm straight heathen. I mean, I'm big on justice. And so I'll tell them, hey, you, the line's back there, buddy. You know, and uh, God's refining my character. He's teaching me, hey, you gotta be patient, man. It's not about you. But sometimes I think it's about me, right? I don't want people cutting in line. Does anybody enjoy when people cut in front of you? Anybody? I mean, it happened the other day. This lady was completely oblivious. Me and Candace were waiting in line. I don't know where we were at. And she cuts in front of us. And the whole time I'm thinking, are you a nubbit lady? What are you? Okay, nubbit, slang. That's, my, that's what my kids say. So it's just, are you nubbit? Like, what are you doing? I didn't say anything because I'm growing. I'm growing in Jesus, right? 
But I looked at Candace. Candace looked at me. We didn't even have to say anything. It was just like, okay, whatever. But you know what? Jesus said, let people cut in line. Jesus said, take the back seat, buddy. It's not about you. It's not about your agenda. It's not about your needs and your wants and your wishes. It's about other people. That's difficult medicine to swallow, right? This is what he tells us. Romans 12.10, he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Well, how do we outdo one another in showing honor? When you put people's interests and needs above your own. So this week, here's my challenge. My challenge to all of us. Are you ready? Starting with me and then you. Let's seek to outdo one another, right? Let's outdo other people. Listen, treat it like a game. This week, I'm going to outdo you. In your marriage, I'm going to outdo you this week. I'm going to outdo you in honor, right? Maybe someone in your oikos, maybe someone at work, maybe it's someone that, you know, you guys just maybe don't get along, that you don't really like them, they don't like you, outdo them in honor. Do some things this week that make them kind of like, what the heck is going on, right? Ouch. How do we do that? We, we serve other people. The greatest passage on servanthood is Philippians 2. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, right? Don't do something that's gonna benefit you, right? But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul's saying in humility, count others, or regard others more significant, more important than yourself. That's so hard to do. Heard a story years ago, William Booth, he was asked to address a huge convention of the Salvation Army. He's the one who started it. And at the last minute, he became ill and he could not go. And instead, he sent a telegram and the crowd was very expectant as the telegram was read and it contained only one word, others. That's the telegram that he sent, others. Life is about Jesus and others. Sometimes we think life is about Jesus and me. It's about Jesus and other people. You know, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That's the key. Thinking of yourself less, thinking of other people more. And the greatest example of humility, what does it look like to be humble? What does it look like to be a servant? What does it look like to put other people's needs in front of your own? It's Jesus. Because in in verses 5 to 11 of Philippians 2, he, he gives us this beautiful portrait of Christ. Christ left heaven's throne room. The intimacy and fellowship that he had with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He, he comes into our broken world. He takes upon flesh, walks in our shoes. He experiences the temptations we do, but yet committed no sin. He lived the perfect life. And then he humbly laid his life down on a cross for the sins of the world. That is beautiful submission. He submitted his will to the will of the Father beautiful submission. Jesus was willing to take upon flesh. He was willing to come into the brokenness and the rubble of our world and to to fix and to mend and and to make things right again. Charles Swindoll said this. He asked the question to some kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And uh, he said, that's a favorite question we enjoy asking kids. And the answer is we 
get usually are a policeman or a nurse or maybe a fireman. Some kids are visionary. They answer a movie star or a singer or a doctor or a professional ball player. One recently told me he wanted to be either a car mechanic or a garbage collector. Which, by the way, I told my kids back in the day, you collect garbage, you make good money collecting garbage. I don't know if you know that. You make good money. Any, okay. So Charles Swindoll said, when I asked why, he gave the classic answer for a nine-year-old, so I can get dirty. That's why I want to be a car mechanic or a garbage collector. I smiled as I had flashback to my own childhood. As I understood, let's take that same question and ask it another way. Let's imagine asking Jesus Christ what he wants us to be when we grow up. Suddenly, it's a whole new question. I honestly believe he would give the same answer to every one of us. I want you to be different. I want you to be a servant. When we grow up, do we want to be like Christ? If we want to be like Christ, we're going to want to serve other people. Look at Romans 12, 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Here's point number four. Passionately serve Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's what it means to be in community. We're going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve other people. I love what Thomas Watson said. He said, none ever complained of serving God. It was their comfort and their crown on their deathbed. Isn't that beautiful? It's, it's the comfort and the crown on their deathbed, them knowing that they served God. You know, when it comes to serving God, don't lose energy. Don't lose enthusiasm. Don't lose passion in, in, in serving other people. The word fervent, when, when, when Paul says be fervent in spirit, the word fervent means to boil, to be hot, to be stirred up emotionally, to be on fire. God wants us to be boiling over. He wants us to be passionate about serving him. And he gives us a warning about spiritual laziness and, and lukewarmness, Revelation 3. John is writing to the seven churches of, of Asia Minor and God has a word with the church uh, at Laodicea. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that, you either, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Your translation may say I will spew you out of my mouth. The problem with the church of Laodicea, they were neither cold, cold nor hot. They were lukewarm. God is literally saying your lukewarmness makes me sick. I'm nauseous because there's no passion, there's no zeal, there's, there's no fervent in spirit. Anytime you serve other people, you're really serving Jesus. If you serve as a greeter, if you serve on the media team, if you serve with our little ones in the nursery, if, if you serve our kids on Sunday morning, our elementary kids or youth or wherever, you're actually serving Christ. Because Jesus said, if you do it unto the least of these, you do it unto me. Romans 12, 12. He goes on. He says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Here's point number five. Persevere when life gets tough. This is what he's saying. Persevere when life gets tough. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. You know, there's two kinds of, of, of hope. There's godly hope and there's worldly hope. 
Worldly hope is like wishful thinking. It's a strong desire. It's sheer optimism. Biblical hope is anchored to the promises of God found in the Bible. So like, I'll give you an example of like wishful thinking, right? Worldly hope. Here's an example. The Eagles are going to beat the Niners today, this afternoon. That's just worldly hope. That's just wishful thinking, right? Because my Niners are going to win today, right? It's been a good weekend so far. Celtics beat the Lakers last night. Niners are going to beat the Eagles. It's going to be a great weekend, right? I thought about opening the sermon in a prayer and at the end saying, God, let the Niners win. Amen. Okay. Um, but I thought, eh, better not. All right. So listen, wishful thinking, it's, it's optimism, right? You're hoping that that's going to take place. Hope, biblical hope is different. It's not wishful thinking. You're not hoping. You know it's going to happen because it's anchored to the character of God. It's anchored to the promises of God. It's anchored to, um, to God and what he has said in his word. So when life seems bleak, when it's dark and it's hard and your world is crashing in all around you, you can rejoice in hope. And I love that. You can have this joy mixed with hope. You can rejoice in hope. You can have this joy in hope because God controls the future. Present circumstances cannot rob us of the hope we have in Christ. This is why we can endure trials and tribulations. This is when, when life gets hard and it's difficult and you feel like you're, just, you're losing your grip. God doesn't lose his grip on you because he's sovereign, because he's in control. Because he, he, he's doing something in your life that's wonderful. Paul says, be constant in prayer, right? Prayer makes a difference. Romans 12, 13, he says, last of all, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Here's point six, generously share with those in need. Man, we did a three-part message on giving and generosity, so I'm not going to spend much time here, but let me just say this. The word contribute here is the verbal form of the Greek word koinonia, which is often translated fellowship. So what that means is he's saying this word contribute means to share or to have, to have a share of something. We are to be generous in our giving towards Christians in need. Believers in the other church, they sold their possessions and their belongings and they distributed the proceeds to any in need. Some people say this is, um, some people say this is uh, communism. Communism says what's yours is mine and I'm going to take it. Christianity, the messaging and the principle is different. It's what is mine is yours and I'm going to share it. Paul says contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. Literally, he's saying, pursue hospitality. Pursue hospitality. Well, what, what, is, what does that mean, to pursue hospitality? Literally, it means the love of strangers. The love of strangers. Pursue this love of strangers, to invest your life in people, to get to know other people, people that you don't know. You, you, you know nothing about them. Pursue them, right? You can do that in lots of different ways. You can jump into a community group this week 
And it's about extending hospitality. You're, you're, you're sharing your life with people that you don't know. They're sharing their life with you. You're, grow, you're gonna grow spiritually together. Maybe having someone over for a meal, right? Maybe someone you just met at church. Maybe a neighbor. Hey, come on over for a meal, right? That's, that's, that's what it means to be a, a lover of strangers. It's what it means to pursue, to seek hospitality. You think about the gospel. What did God do for us? He pursued us. He pursued us. He penetrated our world. Like he, he chased after you. He pursued after your heart. Like he sought you out. He laid claim upon your soul. He, he loved you. He, he extended mercy and grace towards you, right? He wants to have a relationship with you. I mean, Jesus, we, Jesus tells us in one of the churches of, uh, of Asia Minor, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If you open the door, I'll come in and we'll, we'll sup, we'll dine together. It's a beautiful picture of God saying, I want a relationship with you. If you let me in, man, I'll do something so beautiful in your life. So as believers, let's, let's live this out. Let's live out this community. Let's be marked by these truths. This week, I just want to challenge you. You hear me say it all the time, but I just want to challenge you to jump into a group because you can't live the Christian life alone. You just can't do it, Right? There's going to be trials and tribulations. There's going to be disappointments in life. There's going to be boulders that are, that are going to fall on you. There's going to be sorrows and pain. And are you going to have people around you that can circle around you, that can pray for you, that can carry the burden for you? If you're not connected to other people, when bad things do happen, you're going to, you're not, you're going to have no one there to carry the burdens with you and for you. We need each other. And so my challenge this week is get involved. Find a group, right? And invest in other people. Let them invest in your life. That's what it means to be a part of a gospel-centered community. Let's pray.